coming live from Idaho, USA is our guest this evening. Welcome to this very special edition of the KJ Masterclass Live, the show which ensures that you profit from your time spent here with experts, either through the industry insights, information, or simply learning from them. And today we'll be having a lot of learning with Nancy Napier, professor, inspiring speaker, and author. Welcome to the show, Nancy. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be with you. Thank you, Nancy. And we'll be talking about how unfolding our curiosity can help us find new ways to look at the world. And we can also give organization leaders ideas from unexpected sources. But let me ask you about curiosity itself. What exactly is curiosity? Because earlier on, a lot of people used to say curiosity killed the cat. So <laughs> is curiosity only for humans or animals or any other being can be curious and can curiosity kill humans also so what sort of curiosity are you talking about several questions at the same time you are a professor you are accustomed to several questions at the same time but you have the liberty to answer them at your leisure here at your own pace over to you thank you i think curiosity frankly is one of the most fundamental traits, characteristics that humans need. You talk about animals, and I I haven't thought about that that way, but I think you're right. I have a dog that's incredibly curious about food and people, so I'm sure animals are curious as well. But for humans, curiosity is really looking at something that maybe we don't know much about, but want to know more about. And it encourages us to ask questions. I am a huge person for asking questions. And I think what what some of the research says that is that curiosity starts when we have a little bit of knowledge about something, and then we want to get much more knowledge. If we have too much knowledge, I fear that if you become too much of an expert, maybe you lose some of that ability to ask really good questions. I One of my favorite examples is a very simple one. We I do a lot of work in Vietnam, and we had a family visit us uh, several years ago from Hanoi. And the daughter, one daughter was about 10 years old. We drove up into the mountains. Where I live is, is high desert, but it's also high mountains. We have 40 mountains over 3,000 meters high. So there's lots of snow up there. And as we were driving, she got all excited about seeing snow. So we stopped the car, got out. She touched the snow, felt it. And I said, well, what, what's with this interest in snow? She said, I've read about snow. I know a little bit about snow, but I've never seen it. I want to know more about it. And I thought, aha, there's that curve. She knew a little bit about snow. She wanted to know more about it, but she wasn't such an expert that she'd say, oh, I know it all right now. So that ability to to ask questions about something that you want to know more about. But of course, that means you need to be open to learning about different things. I One other example, um, I, I don't like parties, but I have to go to parties sometimes. And what I tend to do is find someone that's standing off to the side and I play a game with myself and say, figure out what is it that just excites this person. When does her, when do her eyes light up and she wants to talk about a topic? And so I start asking questions about what they might do for fun and so forth. And usually I can land on something that people are excited about. And sure enough, whatever it is, I may be completely uninterested at the beginning, 
but that person says something and I become more curious and want to know more. So I've learned about crazy things like bow hunting, who I don't care about hunting, but bow hunting and fly fishing and so forth. So it's that, that openness to ideas that maybe we haven't thought about and then the willingness to ask serious questions of other people. Right, 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 Nancy. So curiosity can lead you further. But the society, the times that we are li living in, how much place does curiosity have here? Do we still have place for asking questions in different spheres of our lives? You talk about leadership. Do organizations allow it? You talk about political systems. Yeah. Does politi all political systems allow it? And also, uh, in our society, you have this cancel culture increasing day by day. Mm -hmm. Does society only want conformists? Do we actually inherent inherently want conformists? Even Galileo had to you know, change his opinion, at least for people's sake, that about the earth. So every time we see in moments of history, there have been questions about curiosity itself. Mm -hmm. They always say, be curious, but don't ask questions to us. You can ask mm -hmm. questions. I think, sir, I ask, I want to understand how you look at this aspect of our lives. Yeah. And then we'll come to much more. Is it that they allow curiosity only for stupid people because they can be they can be made conformist and there is not much place of intelligent questions. Overall, again, several questions at the same time, but the whole reason is answer at your own pace. You know, I'm ultimately an optimist and I, I am, well, on the one hand, I'm discouraged about some of the points you make. I think you're right on target about what we are seeing in society, maybe what big picture society expects, wants, and so forth. But if we don't push back, we will just slip back. So I think uh, a Galileo was a great example of somebody who really had to push hard against so much opposition. And we have the same thing now. And so if, if I just give up and say, I will accept what's going, whatever direction things are going, whether it's politics, which is pretty dramatic these days in the United States and in, in Britain right now. Um, so I refuse to accept that. And so what I have learned over the years, and maybe maybe I'm, I'm, I should say that I'm not perfect by any means, but I seek out people who are open to question, leaders who are willing to question. And I've worked with some who start out saying, no, 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 I'm not creative. I, you know, my industry, we've done things the same way forever and it's always worked. And then I let that person talk and I realize that the, the person will tell me, oh, well, we hire people in a different way. We develop people in a different way. We try to do something new and different every day to get better. And so they really are creative. They really are curious. They're more open than they realize. So there are perhaps people who say, I never want to learn anything new. There are some that say, I want to know something new every day. And then there's this middle group that may say, what we have works. And then those are the ones I think are have potential to help them see that, no, you can probably do small things. It doesn't have to be huge, but to move in that direction. So I guess at the end of the day, I think you're probably right that the way humans 
we just settle in and inertia keeps us from wanting to move or do things that are difficult or ask hard questions. But if we don't keep pushing, we'll just settle back and nothing will, there'll be no progress for us really. So I am optimistic in the, in the academic world, in the political world. I want to see some, um, I think overall we can't stop. It's not a matter of whether society will let us ask questions and be curious. We have to. Right. Right, Nancy. But we got to keep asking questions and you are a professor. Uh, you are one of the torchbearers whom a lot of people uh, look up to. And a lot of torchbearers, future torchbearers would obviously be looking at you for giving them the right direction like students young generation. So what would you tell this young generation? Leadership. Whoever can be the hope for the future. What would you tell them? How to be curious within the confines of you know, blocks, mental blocks, and the <laughs> type of society that we stay in different aspects, different uh, areas of the small earth that we are in. How do they find that path and be curious and move forward because that's the hope not only for themselves but also for humanity for independent thoughts independent ideas not for anything did nasa name its rover curiosity <laughs> very good point i think uh the number one thing i would do is what you're doing make a point to find people who do not think the same way who come from different locations, from different industries, from different backgrounds, and get to know them. When we stay in our little bubble, which we've all done during the pandemic, I find that I my, my world closes down and I have to seek out new thoughts, new ideas, new stimulation through, I do a lot of reading, I do a lot of, I watch a lot of YouTubes and so forth. And I really try to force myself to look for areas and people that have different views than I do. And so that would be one thing I say to everybody. Um, you mentioned, or we will talk at some point, I think about some work that I've done where I brought leaders from incredibly different types of organizations, from sport right. to law enforcement, to the arts, to business. And when they first got together, some of them said, what can I learn? What can a, a sports coach learn from a dancer or from a software developer? And what they learned is that so many of our topics, our, our thoughts on leadership, on culture, they're similar across high-performing organizations that want to be creative and want to be curious. So that would be number one, is to find a way to expose yourself to people who are not the same way you are. One of the easiest ways to do it, and I'm so glad we're coming out of, of the pandemic, is to travel. And right. so to to go to places, I just came back last week from Hanoi, Vietnam. <clears throat> I teach in a graduate program here, which is all executives. So top leaders in a variety of organizations from medicine to uh, business to the arts. And we take them every year to, well, haven't been there for three years, but went back this year for one week in Hanoi where they did business projects while they were there. None of them had been to Vietnam. Many of them had traveled, but to places like Europe. One, one of our uh, participants, a physician, 
went home to India afterwards to see his parents. So he was able to travel onward. But the reactions, I just received the papers that they wrote about what they learned. And I'm really anxious to read them because most of them told me when we were there, I never would have thought how different and how similar we could be from people from Vietnam. So travel is one of those, just if you can do it, if you're lucky enough to have the means to do it, go to places that are really different from where you live. And that'll be stimulation for curiosity for sure. If you can't do it in a far off place, I, a few years ago, I gave myself a challenge to say, be a learner, be a tourist in my own backyard. Where could I go within my own fairly small community? We're half a million people. Where could I go to expose myself to people, situations, problems that are really different than what I deal with every day. So I went to one place I went was the zoo, the local zoo. And I learned all about how zoo animals are cared for, how they eat, what their behaviors are. I had never even thought about it. I knew the zoo director and he said, well, come look at us, the behind the scenes. So if you can't travel far and wide, travel close and nearby but also say, approach it with the same open-mindedness, curiosity that you might have if you go to another country, another location that stimulates you, forces you to think that way. When I travel nearby, I have to put on my tourist eyes or my learner eyes and ask questions that I might ask if I were traveling to Vietnam. So those would be a few of the ways I would suggest anybody, not just young students, but older participants in a in an academic program or anybody who's just wanting to learn. Right, right, Nancy. And before I forget, uh, forget, uh, I, I just thought, how did you connect with Vietnam so closely from being from the U.S. already doing so great down there? You have to say had a great relationship with Denmark, Alborg University, if I can, I'm pronouncing it correct. Adjunct yeah. professor. Yeah. yeah. So, Amidst all these things, then going down to Vietnam, and though you received two Vietnam stock honors for foreigners, means it's such a huge uh, thing getting honors, uh, medals uh, down there, and bringing two countries together in different spheres. So I thought before I forget this and I come to the next question, I would ask you about this special relationship with Vietnam. How did this work out? And how did you become so close to, you just returned from Hanoi, as you said last week. Mm -hmm. So um, you raise one other important point for curiosity in my mind, and that is serendipity. So we need to be open to opportunities that come. Uh, we should assess them. And sometimes they are ones to pursue, sometimes not. And the Vietnam relationship began as a, as an, opportunity, unexpected opportunity to go in 1994 to teach for three weeks. The country at that time, you may remember, um, Vietnam is a communist country. And so their main partners were the Soviet Union. And they traded, they did uh, sent their people for education, jobs to Russia, Romania, East Germany. <clears throat> when the Soviet Union fell apart in 1989, Vietnam had, and, and we still, America still had a trade embargo. Vietnam had to learn how to do business with the rest of the world. And so the Swedish government funded a project to train 
uh, 30 people at one of the top universities in a, an international standard MBA, Master's of Business Administration. And I became a tiny piece of that, just going over to, to deliver three weeks worth of, of training. I hit it off with the manager of the program, who was from Canada. And she, again, serendipity during the summer of 94, said, what if your university takes over this program, finishes the Master's of Business pro, uh, degree one year? And we did. And then the Swedish government, the Vietnamese university said, ooh, 30 people trained in an MBA is not enough. Let's do that again. And let's see if we can do a new venture startup of an international standard business school within that university in Hanoi, National Economics University. So by then, my university had taken over that project. And so I became the lucky, uh, lucky, I'll say, but also challenged. It was an incredibly stimulating experience, incredibly challenging. I tell people that when I went there, I had brown hair. So you can see what it did to me, right? And so it started with that uh, one, three weeks and turned into nine-year-long capacity building projects funded by Sweden, by the U.S. And we ultimately had 80 people with our degree. So they have gone out to do business. They are academics. They work in government. And they the business school is still there, of course. I After that project was over, though, after nine years, I was completely spent. It was... Uh, career-wise stimulating, but it took a toll on my family. I had little kids then. They spent uh, half a year with me in Hanoi. They loved going to school there. Um, but I was commuting back and forth. Or I was living there full-time for maybe six weeks at a time, back for two weeks. And when I was finished, I was finished. And I said, I never want to go back. Three, week, three years later, I did go back. I taught at the business school. They hired me to help teach the next generation. And I did research with people. And then about 10 years ago, we started taking our executive masters of business participants to Hanoi for the week. It is, I, I grew up, my dad was in the army. So I grew up moving place to place. And I've lived here in Idaho now for 30 some years. And I've been involved with Vietnam for almost 30 years. So it's like a second true home to me. So I have watched it go from bicycles and maybe a few motorbikes on the street to 60%, 70% autos, cars, and motorbikes, almost no bicycles anymore. So the the change, the physical infrastructure has changed. But I've watched these people over time grow into leaders. And what I have really loved about almost all of them, and I have a book out, a co-author and I did a book called The Bridge Generation about this group of people who grew up during wartime and during serious famine time, and now they're leaders of the country. They have an attitude of let's give back to the country. So let's help grow, make this place better, stronger economically and so forth. And to watch that and to be a tiny part of that, it has been absolutely marvelous. So I, Vietnam is, is part of my heart now. And so I go, <laughs> I decided I need to build into my budget the chance to go a couple, three times a year just to see everybody and stay in touch and eat some great food. So that's so short who, story. Who adopted whom? You adopted <laughs> Vietnam or Vietnam? adopted you. I hope it goes both directions. I certainly have. I talked to somebody the other day who said, you know, I think you have an earlier life and you were Vietnamese. I don't know. I, but I just, um, it truly is, uh, it, it's a huge city. Hanoi is now 9 million people, 
it's crowded, it's big, but I know it well, the old part of the city, and I know people there well, and they are just incredibly kind and positive, and I, I just have so enjoyed watching them grow and develop over the years as a teacher, of course, um, but as a as an observer of what a country can do um, in 30 years, I mean, how they've how they've progressed. They have problems, absolutely. But in terms of people now having enough to eat and the power stays on and the water stays on, all those things that we dealt with when I first was there, um, that that's gone away. That's fine. But but it's the, the change in the attitude of we can do this. We we can help build this country. They've thought that way for a long time, but I just love watching it play out. It's been great. Right. Right. Some some connections. Uh, are always there, but can you can always find so difficult to explain. And perhaps there is a outwardly connection uh, about all this, and which somebody else decides. Perhaps, as you said, maybe, maybe. yes. Well, what one yeah. last one last point of all of that that you know, I'm sure in India is similar that relationships are so important, and the fact that I have gone back for as many years as I have and tried to uh, be a participant in helping things going. Those relationships now, um, when our participants from our graduate program go there to do to look for markets or our supply sources for companies from our state, we are able to get them plugged in to do real business much easier because of all the tea I drank a long time ago. And so we just returned five teams, and I think four and maybe a half, I'd say. Four of those teams have direct leads that they brought back to the companies that they can follow up now. The fifth firm, they said, the time is not right, but in two years we will go back. I mean, that's phenomenal. So many business people go to a place like Vietnam and spend months creating the relationships. So again, I've just knowing these po- folks who are now leaders in the country, they if they don't know who to talk to, they know someone who does. It's a place, I say, that has a two degree of separation. Everyone knows everyone. And so they have been super helpful with our folks in doing business. And so it's it's a win-win for everyone. The people that I taught so long ago, probably a dozen of them have sent their own children to my university. So that next generation of relationship building is so important as well. Right, right. You see, the whole world talks about six degrees of separation. And the Vietnamese, <laughs> is they talk about two degrees of separation. And we think... A lot of business practices and best practices are about just six degrees of uh, separation. It's not like that. We already answered it. Human connection is always just about two degrees of separation and perhaps less. We got to understand that. So coming about curiosity, ma'am, mm-hmm. uh, you, you have worked with creative leaders who run organizations ranging from jail to university sports, from software to the arts, from education to health information. And you have seen it from so close. So what would you tell to leaders to continuously do things differently, to become better, and how they can beat their competition by still being curious? Because curiosity is something that's going to take forward, or otherwise it will be about water being stagnant and just being thrown out forever. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to see stagnant water for long because mm-hmm. it leads to mosquitoes. <laughs> Good point. Um, I, I Again, I sort of stumbled into this topic. 
I finished my work in Vietnam. I was tired. I didn't want to travel 36 hours to a research site. I did a lot of writing about Vietnam over the years. And so I started searching around for a topic to look at and stumbled onto some data, different data points. And I, uh, I, I couldn't figure out what was going on. It looked like the rest of the world was becoming more creative in research and the U.S. was not, according to the National Science Foundation. I went to one of my favorite CEOs in town and I said, what's happening here? He said, well, it's like being a fish in water. The United States has always been innovative, curious, creative. The rest of the world is deliberately doing more of it. So they're going to pass us by. And I started looking around and there's lots on creativity in individuals from mathematicians to artists, but not so much at that time about um, organizations. And so I thought, okay, I have this summer, I was working on a project with someone, it fell through. So I said, Let, can I come back to the software company CEO? Can I interview people here? And I will look at a theater company as different as could be. How do they think about creativity? How do they um, take advantage of opportunities? How do they execute what they want to do? And, and so it started with those two. And I thought they will be so different. It's amazing. And as I was doing this, again, I stumbled onto our university football, American football program by accident. I had a student who was in the program. I started watching and the TV commentators talked about how that was a creative play. Oh, that was risky. I thought, what? Sports? I am not a sports person. I have no clue. So I talked to the athletic director who said, yeah, yeah, you should talk to the football coach. Two hours later, the football coach says, of course, come look at us. We are creative. So I had these three organizations, software, theater, sports. And from that, I started, I realized all three of those happened to be high performing in their fields, however their fields measured them. So for the theater company, they had the Yale University Drama School had done a case study about them. They were getting write-ups in the New York Times. Uh, the software company won all sorts of awards. It was growing very quickly. The football program was highly ranked. So they were high performing. And it turns out they were highly creative. And I just um, started with that and then became curious with other companies and I, I sought them out. So I could, um, I'm looking over, I'm sorry, I've got a dog here who's, who's... No problem, no problem. Okay, let me, yeah, let me just call it. Come here, come on. Um, so anyway, that's how that got started. And then they wanted to meet and exchange ideas directly. So we called them the gang. And that became an ongoing meeting with those CEOs. And what distinguished them I think it was best said by the head of the jail, the sheriff. He had become sheriff and six months later, this was a great jail, well-performing, high-performing, but, but the most dangerous inmate in the jail escaped. And he said, we had become complacent. We were good, not great. So that, that kicked him into thinking about what can we do differently to never let that happen again? How can we bet, get better? He started studying business. Um, and so that was a key for all of these other people when they saw that they were each asking themselves, what can we do differently today to get better? Now, think of the curve we all know, the S curve. And so many organizations grow, grow, grow. They do well, really well. And they get up to this point and it's a tipping point where maybe they can never get better. They, they become complacent and fail. 
these organizations, if you imagine little tiny S curves all the time, so before they ever get to a point where they're really good, they're constantly asking those questions of how can I get better? Now, you asked earlier a really good question, which is, can we all be curious? Um, I don't think everyone wants to be curious. So I have, there are organizations that have asked me to, to help out and I'll go in and start asking questions. And I realize that they are pretty set in what they do. They've gotten some kudos, they've won some awards. So obviously what we're doing must be right. And why should we change? And I think I'm not going to be able to change your mind. So it's not, it's not helpful to you. It's not helpful to me to get frustrated. So I have learned I have, there are times when I just say this one may not want to change, sadly. But as I, I, I am optimistic up to a point with them. But um, I think that's, that's the key is when they, they realized that they were all doing those S curves constantly so that they would get better. The other thing about that group is that you had a sheriff asking a coach, asking a software CEO questions that were so far out of their perspective, they, it forced everybody to sit back and say, I've never thought about it that way. So that was super useful. Back to um, our conversation about young people or anybody, how can you be curious? Surround yourself with people who are different than you are. That was the way of doing was, excuse me, of doing that for that group. And um, I think that group, we, I facilitated their discussions for maybe six or seven years. And then some of them moved away, some of them retired, we added and changed members. But that learning group um, became a, um, a model that in, in my town, we used with about seven or eight groups over the course of 10 or 12 years. And it's, it's highly intensive, you can imagine, to get people together on a regular basis so they can exchange ideas. And if, if the facilitator wasn't there, what happens? They sort of go back into their own worlds. So it's, it's a good thing to do, but it's also a really hard thing to keep a learning group like that going. And um, I, don't, I never figured out how to scale it, which would be great. Um, but yeah. Right, right, ma'am. You see uh, the irony here. A jailer studying or knowing about business, mm -hmm. asking questions that we were good, but we weren't great. And that leads, leads to his learning to understand things in different perspective. Look at our businesses. Are they thinking about bottom line, top line, or just being good are ever thinking about being great? How many of them are? Mm. We every day we talk about unicorns, we talk about billionaires, we talk about so many other things, but rarely about organizations about becoming great. Now it's an irony, a jailer being among in that environment, trying to keep people locked, but has kept his mind unlocked, open oh. to ideas. Very good, yeah. And people who are supposed to open doors and windows to the world for their employees, for the world, are not getting it. Mm -hmm. Why is this dichotomy? How will they learn? Where will they learn? Will If Taylor can learn from business books or from businesses, 
these guys have already learned from businesses and from life where then they will learn you also well, talk about ideas from unexpected sources mm-hmm. will it will those be the ones which will help them how do you see this whole again thing i am asking again several questions mm-hmm. but you answered your own yeah questions. no and and you raise a good point i that's again why you need to have people like you asking questions that come from a completely different perspective and it forces us to think in different ways one thing that i believe was unusual here and i don't know how how you'd replicate it um what the, one of the, the the ceo of the software company said if i lived in the silicon valley i would have 100 people like me all the time who i could go to and talk to, uh, about problems in my company he said there's really only one of me here and i so i have to find people outside my field to learn from and the um the let me just like excuse me i'm so sorry she's normally really no, it's perfectly all right as i said um, curiosity is still a good thing in my world Yes. So so I think it, you know in the in the case where I live uh, isolation played a role because there were no real strong competitors in software in dance in theater they had to become the best ones. We are 5 hours by car to the nearest large city. So I think again I think that their mentality was we have to do it and we have to find people we can do this with who aren't all silicon valley people who aren't other law enforcement people who aren't other theater people and so that was an advantage that actually there's been some writing about that that when you're in a uh, in a community like this that's away from everything you either thrive on it on the isolation of it or you just kind of piddle out and i think having the chance to come together with other really smart people who were wrestling with these leadership problems that was really good for them i think your um you know you the question of how many companies want to be great wouldn't that be an interesting one to know the answer to i don't know what that answer is first, i first, i guess sorry to interrupt first they need to define what yeah. greatness is about is it yeah. again the top line the bottom line right. is it about you know the stock market or is it about greatness by achieving the actual vision that each of these big companies were formed for right and i i think the particularly public companies that's really tough for them to do anything but worry about the bottom line have you read the new book about jack welch i think it's called the man who killed capitalism and so when he took over ge um for a decade or so or longer 20 years he was the king of what you should do in a company and i found it fascinating that maybe five or six of his uh immediate subordinates who didn't get the job as the CEO they went to different places around the US one of them came to run one of our big companies and did a terrible job because he tried to cut costs and so forth as and cut people dramatically as Jack Welch had done so i think there are some companies where that's going to be really really tough that maybe that's also a reason why i have found these smaller ones to be interesting because they um there are no expectations that they're going to be great big huge um big boats to turn everybody in the same direction they're doing their own thing and so my my hope is more in the medium 
smaller size, not the brand new startups, but rather the ones that have proven themselves. And now they're saying, okay, we don't want to just grow. That's not the goal. We want to get better and better. And so that uh, those kinds of company organizations, not just companies, but organizations, I find really interesting. But I, I you know, I, again, <laughs> if I listen to you, I can get really depressed about all of this. No, 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 no. My, I'm, I am not, I'm a very optimistic oh. person. But you are the ones I can actually ask some of these tough yeah. questions because yeah. you meet most of these people. And if any of these can come out in conversations with them, then perhaps the world will get some answers. Somebody who is looking at not the bottom line, but actually about self-actualization. And perhaps there will be a change, something better that can come out of this. Yeah. If a jailer can look at a better quality of thought process yes. within his confines, I'm yes. sure people, uh, other people have come through, uh, are having better opportunities. I agree. I agree. He, uh, yeah. And it's, uh, again, I, my sample size is pretty small, um, but it, it's the sort of situation when with very large, um, and it's not private versus public always, I think. It's really the leader and that person's perspective on what's what's going to be important. So, um, yeah, I think it's really different. The, the sheriff um, made a name for himself in being able to change the culture of the organization. I used to have him come speak to our executives. And one time someone said, well, can we see the jail? And so sure enough, we arranged, we go visit the jail every year to, and I always say, look for how the culture plays out. What, what does it look like? How do people relate to each other? Is there respect? All of those kinds of things. And so one of the tests I ask my participant students to do is to walk into an organization, walk into a store and figure out what the culture is. And you know, I'm sure from your own experience, you can tell if, if employees are important you can tell if it's all about the bottom line pretty quickly. And so when, again, I would look for places where I think I can help make a difference. And if they're already the best they can be and what they want to do, they're doing already. I don't see a, any kind of a role for me. So I've learned, I've gotten white hair and I've learned that I put my efforts where there might be a possibility of doing some good. So, Right. And putting your efforts now in the? books that you are writing. Tell us about your books. Well, I mentioned The Bridge Generation, which is uh, the most recent one about Vietnam and this uh, profiles of 17 people. And we have a documentary about that as well, about this period in Vietnam um, after the American War ended and very serious famine and fighting two more conflicts in China and Cambodia. Um, and when the pandemic started, I thought, I don't have a big research project going on. I'm going to make my project learning how to write fiction. And I had no idea how challenging that would be. Um, I have now four really bad novels written. And so I'm trying to take a couple of them and turn them into not so bad novels, better novels. But the process of learning something brand new, back to curiosity, that has been phenomenal. At the same time, I decided to try and learn tennis. I have a family of three really good tennis players, and they used to say, oh, come on, mom, you need to play with us. 
So every 10 years, I'd take two days of lessons and say, no, no, let me just be the cheerleader. Well, this time I thought, okay, let me stick with it. So I'm learning something physical. And as I said, I'm not a sports person trying to learn that. I'm trying to learn something which is a really different way of thinking, fiction writing. And it's put me in the position of being a beginner. And I'm curious about everything about these two things now, but I'm a beginner and I realize how it has helped my teaching. So even though I'm teaching executives with 10 or 20 years of, of leadership experience and experts in, in business or in um, nonprofits or medicine or whatever it might be, when whatever topic is that I'm t- dealing with, they're beginners. And so the notion of how do you present, how do you help them experience some of these ideas, that is phenomenal. And I, I reached... Uh, conclusion in the last, I don't know, five years that it's okay to say something more than once or to have them experience it in a different way. So I always try to think of three different ways I can come at a topic um, that they won't say, gee, you're repeating yourself, but have them do something, have them read something, have them talk about something, have them do something in a team. Um, Because being a beginner myself is, is, is terribly frustrating but also terribly interesting and uh, inspiring to keep learning. So that's another piece of back to curiosity of forcing yourself now and then to be a beginner, whether it's learning how to paint, learning how to play softball, whatever it might be that you go back to the beginning and realize there's so much in your head you have to keep track of. Once you become a little more experienced or an expert at something, that's all natural. You just do it. But right now for me, I've got four or five things I have to remember when I'm trying to serve a ball. Ah, it's, it's, it's difficult. But again, it's worth doing and it teaches me, reminds me how important it is to be curious. Right. And those who are curious to uh, know more about you, to know more about things, leaders, individuals, how do they connect with you? Start with the website, Nancy K, initial K, Napier.com. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm not as active as you are, I think, on Twitter and so forth, but I do use LinkedIn quite a, a bit. And then the website, I think. Books, all of the books are on Amazon. So the Bridge Generation one, the Curiosity one, the one Wise Beyond Your Field, which is really about this um, learning beyond your discipline, the, the gang groups and how that worked. I used that group again to write a book about culture, live culture. How does culture come about? How do you keep it going? How do you keep it from being toxic? So Amazon has them all, hard copy, Kindle copy. So that would be a good place to look. Good place to go. And so uh, this was a great discussion. And talking of curiosity, ma'am, I can just think again about NASA. (laughs) Curiosity. Uh, I don't know whether curiosity or opportunity, but I would take that when there is curiosity, there is opportunity. And then afterwards, you still can't sit back or you will again lose the dangerous person within uh, your area. So you have to persevere. That's why they made, named it perseverance. Mm-hmm. That's what mm-hmm. it is now. Perseverance, perseverance and curiosity. Absolutely. Very and opportunity. And, and perseverance leads to ingenuity of ideas. And that's where the new flight of ideas will take you. Mm-hmm. Curiosity will lead to new flight for humanity, not just to Mars, but beyond mm-hmm. Mars and the solar system. Oh, that's I love what that. I can say with these words. 
Excellent. It's a wrap on this very special edition of the KJ Masterclass Live. Thank you so much, ma'am, for joining us on this show. I appreciate it so much. It's been a delight to talk to you. Thank you.